Praise the Lord of one. You may be seated. Before I begin today, let me say what a great honor it is to be here. And I do hope and pray today that something I say will help your life to become better. I know that one of the typical things that us Pentecostals do, especially in connection to church, is we have become incredibly emotional, but your emotions won't change you. So I I truthfully today would wish that your emotions weren't here, that you weren't listening based upon emotions, that you're listening based upon knowledge, because knowledge changes. The Bible didn't say my people perish for lack of emotions. That has never been the problem. My people perish for lack of knowledge. It's the lack of knowledge that affects our lives and causes us not to be able to become a better person than we are. And so I want to share some things with you today and challenge the way you think. We talked about excuses last night. There are a lot more we could talk about, which I'm not going to do today. Uh, We're going to talk about the five principles of relationship. There are five basic principles that define every relationship you'll be involved in in life, whether it's friendship, whether it has to do with your work, whether it has to do with your church, uh, marriage, whatever relationships you have, they will always be defined by these five principles. The health of those relationships will be defined by how you apply these five things to your life. The first principle is value. The second principle is values. They're not the same. Value and values are two different things. Rules, boundaries, and law. And so I want to start with that first one today. And last night we read from the Word of God, and we read where Peter writes about Sarah and Abraham And it said, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. The word honor is timeless, and it speaks... Its actual definition is of great price, precious, held in honor, esteemed especially dear, very valuable. I have an illustration I want to use this morning. Before I show it to you, I want you to know it's not real. But I wish it were. Now, there, there are nine of these in the world today that are this large. They have a distinct name. They're called Terra Diamonds. Uh, There's two of them not far from here. If you travel to Washington, D.C. and go to the Smithsonian Institute, there are two of these inside the Smithsonian Institute. You can go look at them. You can go see um, their beauty, their splendor, 
Uh, they belonged to several people. I think one of them belonged to Elizabeth Taylor, and eventually the Smithsonian Institute purchased it from her, and now it's on display there. There's also two in the Tower of London that belong to the Queen of England. I have seen those as well. To see those, you have to walk three floors below ground into a steel concrete vault that our guide told us could withstand an atomic bomb. There are guards stationed all up and down that set of stairs that you walk down into. There's no elevators. There's no easy ride down. You're going to walk down three flights of stairs and you're going to walk back up them to get out. When you get to the bottom of that last flight of stairs, there's a little foyer area about half the size of this room, and then there's this huge steel door. And when you walk inside that steel door, that area is probably four times this size. On display, are, and this is 1993. I'm sure their value is much more valuable than this today. But in 1993, they said that those jewels and crowns and the gold and all the, the precious stones that were there were worth $3.4 billion. They're crown jewels of England. They're very valuable. If this was real, its value would be somewhere between 60 and $500 million. Have you ever seen anybody play baseball with a diamond? Everybody seen anybody try to hit one with a hammer to see if they could break it? Why? It's too valuable. See, value defines everything about life. It's the value that place that you place on things that defines how you treat them. It costs the Queen of England millions of dollars every year to pay for the guards that protect her diamonds. Valuable things require constant support, constant vigil. You have to constantly maintain them because of their worth. I'm going to use an illustration today, so let's let's do some make-believe. I own this. It's mine. And I decide I want to give it to you. I have one condition. The condition is you've got to keep it five years. Would you turn me down and say, no, I don't want it? That's that's too expensive. Uh, I, don't, I don't want that. I, I heard that in one of the... I, I used this illustration and... And a, a lady said, oh, my, 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 I, don't, I handed it to her. I said, you know, if it was 60, she wouldn't even hold it. She said, no, I don't want that. that that's too much responsibility. See, that's our world today. Our world today don't want to take responsibility for anything. And, and when things require responsibility, we just don't them down and say, no, I don't want, I can't deal with that. I can't handle that. Where would you keep something this large? Well, it's not real large, is it? Well, would you keep something that's valuable? Would you get a coffee can with a plastic lid and go out in your backyard and dig a hole and bury it? Create your little map or go, maybe go out in the woods where nobody's following you and, and you bury it by a big tree and, and, and you mark your map on how to get there at five years? Is that where you're going to keep it? Would you take it home? Go to the local furniture store, buy you a curio cabinet and go to the hardware store and buy you some spotlights or track lights and sit it in the corner of your living room and put it on a little 
gold pedestal and put lights on it and then bring people in and show it to them? Why wouldn't you do that? Someone steal it. If you would take it home, you're telling me you don't care about anybody that lives around you. You don't care about your own children. Because you put your whole family at risk to have something that valuable on public display. Where do you keep it? Is there a safe place? Of course there is. Every bank or every large bank in your town rents out little boxes. You wouldn't go to the one. They built a bank in my town not long ago out of modular buildings. They brought them in. They're sitting up off the ground. They bolted them in. And I was thinking, you know, that is not a bank I'd put my money in. They just, there's no way they've got a vault in that place. If they do, anybody can just break through the floor of that thing and get in. There's no security in that building. You, you want a bank that's built out of concrete and steel so that nobody can get in it. You're going to rent a vault, cost you about 99 bucks a year, and you can put this under lock and key, guarded and protected by alarms and security every day. Got an old pair of shoes that are wore out? What do you do with them? Where do you wear them? Where do you leave them? Mine are by the back door of my home. Uh, I was working in my backyard and got mud on them. Someone locked the gate so I couldn't get out to go put them in the garage. I just left them by the back door. They've been rained on probably 30 times this winter. Uh, it doesn't matter if they get wet because they're wore out. The value that you place on things defines how you treat them. You can never abuse anything till you make it worthless. You leave old shoes by the back door because they have no value. If my wife is a diamond, I don't put her on like a pair of shoes and wear her. If the person that I say I'm going to connect my life to is valuable, then I'm going to treat them totally differently than anybody else. I, I, I'm going to have some things about life that I do to protect them. I don't leave them exposed. Value is going to define everything about life. It, it, it's going to define how I treat things. The value placed on church defines how often you come to church, church what you do at church. The value placed on God defines how you interact with God, whether you're involved in the kingdom of God. The value you place on friends defines how you treat your friends, what you do with your friend. The value that I place on my wife defines how I treat her. The value I place on my children defines how I treat them. The value I place on my grandchildren defines how I treat them. Value defines everything about life. If it's valuable, if I understand its worth, marriage is honorable. Marriage is valuable. And all husbands live with them according to knowledge, giving honor, placing value upon. When Jesus came, it was obvious that his world saw women as an object they owned, not a person they related to. Jesus came into a world that treated women with such disrespect. Remember the woman caught in the act of adultery? Where's the man? They didn't care about the man. It's the woman causing all these problems. She's worthless. She's an object. She's, if I get tired of her, if I don't like her no more, can a man put away his wife for every cause? If she burns, burns a toast, don't clean the house, or I just don't like looking at her anymore. 
she irritates me. I can tell her go home. I can send her home, and she had to go home. Jesus walked in that world and changed all that. He started packing those things. He said, you have taken what I created, and you have destroyed it. You have perverted it. You have treated it with disrespect and dishonor. I am demanding that you start treating them the way I intended for them to be treated. When, when, when God created Adam, and then he creates Eve, what does he say about them? What does he say about his creation? He said, it's good. Now, he saw that Adam was alone, and so he created for Adam a help meet, not mate. Now, we, we just translate mate, a help mate, someone to help me. That's not what the word says. That Hebrew word is very difficult to translate. The closest word we have to translate help mate in the book of Genesis is co-equal. God didn't create a woman beneath a man. He created her beside the man. She's not beneath him. She's not under him. She's beside him. And if, if she's my diamond, who's going to step on a diamond? Who's going to treat a diamond with disrespect? Who's going to scream at, slap, kick, bite, punch a diamond? Who's going to do that? See, to do those things to people that brings disrespect to them, you've got to make them worthless. You've got to destroy all their value. John records the ministry of Jesus in a very unique way. The book of John, the gospel of John, is the end of the Bible. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation is not the last book written. The gospel of John is the last book written. And when John concludes the gospel of John, he says, if all the books in the world could be written about Jesus, the world could not contain the volumes that we could write about him. John lists the miracles of Jesus, and he identifies this as his first miracle. What was Jesus' first miracle identified by John? Anybody remember? Water turned to wine. First miracle. Jesus goes to a wedding. Now, why would he do that? Because the church is his bride. This is all about a family and marriage and relationship. So the first thing Jesus does to begin his ministry is he goes to a wedding. Now, John lets us know in chapter 2 that Jesus knew all men's hearts. He's God in flesh. When, do you think when Jesus went to that wedding that day, he didn't know what was going to happen? You think Jesus got there that day and, and, and was shocked to discover they didn't have any wine? Or they ran out? Jesus went to that wedding knowing why he was going there. That he's going to a wedding because this family is going to be made fun of, belittled, ostracized. Because if they ran out of wine, it brought total disgrace on the family of the bride. So Jesus shows up at this wedding knowing what's going to happen. His mother comes to him and says, they run out of wine. Jesus said, what has that got to do with me? And Mary turned her back on him, walked away. She said, whatever he says do, you do it. Because she had waited 30 years. 
She had been ridiculed, mocked, scorned, called all kinds of names, called a harlot, called a, 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 a woman of disrespect, and, and she had been belittled by that community long enough that it's time you step in the role for why you came. Whatever he says, you just do it. And he turned those big water pots by the front door that they were to wash their feet with when they come in the house to make themselves ceremonial clean. He turned all of that into wine. And that was over 180 gallons of wine he produced that day just to make sure that that family was not mocked, made fun of, belittled, scorned, or any of those things happen as a result of them running out of wine. So Jesus wanted marriages to be important. The next thing we find about Jesus is that he goes to Samaria. Who does he meet at Samaria? The woman at the well. What well did he meet her at? Jacob's well. Why is Jacob's well important? What's its significance? Where did it come from? Well, it's the well Jacob dug when he got back home from Laban's house. He had been promised his inheritance. He had been blessed, but he had nothing to show for what God had said he was going to have or get. So he comes back from Laban's house. He buys a piece of property from the Canaanites, and he digs a well saying, I have come to stay. This is my house. This is my home. I've come to claim what belongs to me. It was Jacob staking out his territory. Jesus went to that well to stake out his territory. Jesus said, I come seek and save that which was lost. And so I'm going to put that woman back in her rightful place. And he gives that woman a revelation that he didn't give his disciples. John's right. This is the last book written. The church would have never had this information. John hadn't written to this. So John is writing, and he lets us know that the message Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he had to get from that woman Jesus talked to at a well. Jesus forced 12 men to interview that woman. See, there was a sect of the Pharisees called the Bleeding Pharisees. They got their name from the fact they refused to look at a woman because it would make them unholy. And if they saw a woman come down the street, they just closed their eyes and kept walking. They walked into buildings, trees, fell in ditches. <laughs> and as a result of their... They, 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 they were proud of the fact that they were scarred because they wouldn't dare look at a woman. So Jesus goes to the well and finds the woman that's been thrown away five times. And he says to her, if you just knew who I was, you'd ask for me, and I would give you the gift of God. The only place that word gift is used in the New Testament after that is the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's a unique term. There are three words for gift in the Greek language. That term that's used is a word that defines what God does for man, not what man does for God. It's not a gift that you have to pay a sacrifice to give. It didn't cost you nothing. 
It's a gift given because it belongs to you and you have the power to give it away. So God says, I'm going to give you a gift. But he told this woman, if you just knew who I was, you'd ask me and I'd give you the gift of God. And your life would be changed forever. And then he gives her a revelation of, of her own life. You're not married now and you've had five wives before this one. And she's all, you're, you've got to be a prophet. You know all things. And first thing she's going to talk about is God. We, you know, we, we say worship Mount Gerizim. Why do they say worship Mount Gerizim? Because Shiloh is where the first tabernacle was erected and remained until Eli's sons took the ark in the battle and it was captured by the Philistines. The Philistines marched to Shiloh and burned it down. That's Mount Gerizim. That's where the original tabernacle was erected and they claimed that's where you should worship God. And they were right. David built the temple in Jerusalem. And the only remaining artifact of the original tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. And he brings it back to Jerusalem, just sticks it inside a tent. There's no veil. There's no separation. There's no altar. No laver. There's no candlestick. There's no table of shoe bread. There's no altar. All this there. Solomon builds that temple, and then he's got all these things he puts in it. And Mount Gerizim is where they first worship. So shouldn't this, you, we say, they tell me, I've got to worship here. You say Jerusalem. Where do we worship? Jesus said, the day cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father. How? In spirit and in truth. Okay, that word spirit is not Holy Ghost. It's not referring to the Holy Ghost. You're not going to worship God in the Holy Ghost. That word spirit re refers to a human spirit. And there are only two scriptures in the Bible that tell us about the human spirit. One is in the book of Proverbs. And it says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching the inward parts of the belly. Paul in the Corinthian letter says no one knows the man but the spirit of the man. Those two scriptures tell us that your human spirit is your conscience. Paul also tells us your spirit belongs to God. At death, he takes it back. So your spirit <clears throat> is your conscience, and it's what God put in you. So Jesus said the day is going to come where you're going to worship the Father with your conscience and with truth. The Father seeketh such. Then she says, show us the Messiah. And he says, I that speak unto the am he. In the Greek language, it's ego ami soi lelon hoi, which literally translates, I am that I am is speaking to thee. She asked to see the Messiah. He said, no, I want to give you a revelation. I am God in flesh. I am that I am is speaking thee. He gave that woman the revelation of God in flesh. He didn't give it to 12 men. He gave it to that woman. Why? Because man had destroyed the relationship God intended for women to have. This is the church. The church is his bride. <clears throat> so he starts showing 12 men, this is how you treat women. You don't treat them with disrespect. You, you don't talk down to them. You don't belittle them. You don't make them feel worthless. You treat them with respect. Because this is what I'm requiring of you. Value defines everything about life. Adam 
did not value Eve. We talked about it last night. You know, if Adam really valued her, you know, my wife, she's ticked me off several times to the point making me incredibly angry, but never did I want to see her die as a result of what she did. But Adam was willing for that to happen. He's, he's willing to stand there and watch her die to see if God was really serious. That means she had no value to him. He had already destroyed her value. From that time till Jesus came, men started treating women with such incredible disrespect that it took Jesus to change that. The Jews will not admit it, but Jesus changed them because he challenged their view of women. And at that point, Men measured their age not by how old they were, but the number of wives they had. A man wouldn't say I'm 55 years old. He'd say I'm 15 wives old. Bragged about the number of times he had married and divorced. Today, the Jewish culture has the least divorce rate of any culture in the world because they put their families back together. Family became important. And when we put families right and we value people, it changes everything. Now, understanding this principle, let's look at the Bible a little differently. Just because you're spiritual... Doesn't mean you have a good home. Just because you pray, shout, and run aisles, don't mean you got a good home. They're not about spirit. They're about flesh and soul. There's nothing spiritual about it. it, it it's about flesh and soul. And it's about our emotions and our will and our intellect, our choices. I, I'm going to talk about some of the patriarchs this morning, but I, I, I'm going to talk to you about how their, their, their family structure. So, and I hope you understand, or it doesn't bother you that God even used men who uh, didn't have it all together, which should give us a lot of hope. Let's start with Abraham. Ladies, if you and your husband started to go on vacation and he decides to go to this place that when they, when you get there, you got to change your relationship with him. You you, you got to change it from husband and wife to brother and sister. Now, first of all, why would anybody make a decision to go there? Why why would you? Why would it ever cross your mind that you'd want to take your family somewhere that they're going to take your wife from you the moment you show up? Especially if she's attractive, and the Bible says Sarah was the most beautiful woman in, in the whole land, and and so Abraham has this prize, and he's going he knows to go to Egypt. So you never make dumb decisions without calculating the cost. There's not a human alive does dumb things without first thinking about how this is going to affect everybody around me. And look at what it says in, in Genesis chapter 13. Abraham, Abram, talking to Sarah says, let's do this that it may be well with me for thy sake. He didn't care what happened to her. He didn't care if she got raped. He didn't care what, what, what Pharaoh would do to her as long as he came out alive. If, I'm, if something happens to me, you're, why would you even go somewhere? Well, there's a famine. When they get back, and there's a division between Lot and Abraham. Where did Lot go? Which, which area did Lot choose? 
He chose the well-watered plains of Jordan. The Jordan River has never dried up. The only time it has stopped flowing was when God put his hand there and dammed up the water and they walked across on dry land. It's fed by a lake that is 600 plus feet deep. There's never been a famine in the Jordan Valley. It's the well-watered plains. They get back and Lot starts looking around. Abraham has taken Lot to a place that destroyed Lot's thinking. Because when he looks at the well-watered plain of Jordan, he compares it to the land of Zoar as you go into Egypt and the garden of God. He compares it to Egypt and Eden and says, that's got to be a place that you live. That's paradise. All Abraham would have had to do is take a left-hand turn, went 20 miles, and he'd have been in the Jordan Valley. He'd have had water for his flock. He'd had food for his flock. But instead, he was always looking for Egypt. He winds up 400 miles away through a desert to get there. They're wives in Egypt. Now, wife's got to act like sister. Well, she was half-sister. That wasn't a big lie. Now, ladies, do you think Sarah got over that? Do you really think it never bothered her from that day forward? Oh, by the way, there's another woman in the Bible that we find that uh, produced a, a problem as well uh, with Abraham. Uh, Hagar. Uh, who's Hagar? Where'd you come from? Egypt. Hagar is the gift Pharaoh gave Sarah for what he did to her. They hadn't gone to Egypt. There'd have been no Hagar. So you you make decisions that start affecting everything about life, and we won't blame everybody else. We're going to blame it on the on the on the drought. We're going to blame it on God. You know, God's directing me. God didn't direct Abraham. God told Abraham, "I'm going to bless you. I'll bless them. I'll bless thee. I'll curse them. Curse thee. Through thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." God never violated His promise. If God could feed a prophet with a raven, you don't think He could take care of Abraham in the desert or in a drought? Because of what Abraham did, God made Israel go live 400 years there. Why? Because Sarah is just an object. Yeah, she's pretty. Men are going to look at her and like her. But she's not worth protecting. When it comes down to the bottom line, it's all about me. And if I don't survive, she's not going to survive. So let's make sure everything's okay for me. Anybody have your Bible with you? <clears throat> I need someone to go to Genesis chapter 24 and read me verse 67. Keep your Bible open there because I want you to read after that as well. 67, last verse. 
Now, does that sound sick to anybody? Doesn't that sound a little strange? Is anything does, does any red lights go off in anybody's brain about that scripture? If a husband and wife don't develop a good relationship and a loving relationship and a compassionate relationship, when children are born, the children will become the substitute for a mate. And you'll start living your life through your children instead of your husband or your wife. That's called emotional incest. It's more devastating than physical incest. God never intended for a child to become the substitute for a mate. And you start having, feeding all your emotions in the kid. How old was Sarah when Isaac was born? Ninety years old. How old was Sarah when she died? 127. Okay, if she was 127, she's 90. How, how old was Isaac when Mama died? 37. Now, how old is Isaac when he marries? He's 40. Has kids at 60. Okay. If he's 40 years old when he gets married, how long has mom been dead? Three years. See, we never, never pay attention to detail. We don't ever take time to add up numbers and see where numbers fit. Three years, mom's been dead. They're nomads. Now, if you and your mate don't live in the same bedroom, what does that tell the world? There's issues. Uh, it, it could be you don't like him or he snores or whatever, but there's some kind of issues there. And, and the issues are so bad you can't stand being where he's at, right? Whose tent is he going to? Sarah and Abraham didn't live in the same house. She's got a tent. He's got a tent. I cannot imagine in my mind getting married and taking my wife to mama's house to consummate my marriage. Now, that's sick. He gets married. He's got a tent. Why didn't he take her to his tent? He's 40 years old. He's not some kid. He takes her to mama's tent. They, they're nomads. They have to move those tents about every 30 days because their flock grazes the fields over and they have to move to a new pasture and a new pasture. And so they are constantly moving from place to place to place to place. If that's true, that tent has been taken down and put up at least 36 times in three years. Who's been taking that tent down putting that tent up? Abraham? No. Read me the next verse of chapter 1, of, or chapter 25, verse 1. 25, 1. Then again, Abraham took a wife. Huh. He did what? Took a wife. How old is this man? 
He's 140. And again, Abraham did what? And what happened? And, and that, but that's not the end of it, is it? Oh, she did what? What did she bear him? Uh, anybody remember the Midianites? There's one who took David's kids. That's Abraham's children. How many? Six. Six kids at 140 years old. Sarah and Abraham weren't in the different tents because they got too old to have sex. Because that verse says that woman's dead. Isaac got him a wife. Now he's going to take care of himself and he gets a woman young enough. I mean, she's not a granddaughter. She's not a great girl. She's a great, great, great granddaughter. Some woman young enough to produce six kids. See, he didn't know how. He could, <clears throat> he could relate to God. But he couldn't relate to people. He had no clue. He, he, you, you can be real spiritual. There's nobody in the Bible more spiritual than David. Fourteen wives is not a healthy home. There's incest in his home. There's murder in his home. There's adultery in his house. He's got it all together? No. Oh, he can sing great songs. But he didn't know how to relate to people. Abraham didn't value Sarah. So the moment Isaac is born, now... Isaac becomes mama's boy, and Isaac is, is smothered by mother, and he lives under mother's house. And so when he marries a wife, she's going to become mom. She's going to be a replacement. How long did Abraham live? <clears throat> Anybody remember? 175. Okay. 175. Isaac, 40, gets married. At 60... Somewhere between 40 and 60, he does the same thing to Rebecca that Abraham did to Sarah with the same king. Go read their names. They're identical. It's Abimelech that, Sarah, or that, that Isaac and, and Rebecca go to, and, and they've got to act like we're sisters and brothers here. And then... Uh, Bimelech sees them playing and, and, and realizes that's not brother and sister. Brother and sister don't act like that. They, he saw them touch. That's perverted. If they're brother and sister, they're, that's perverted. They're not brother and sisters. Why would you lie to me? Well, we, we, we knew there was no God in this land and that you didn't care about humans. And Now kids are born. Twins. What was God's prophecy of the twins? The what? The younger will the older. The older will serve the younger. Dad spent his whole life making sure it didn't happen. How did the younger get the birthright? 
His brother comes home starving, thinks he's going to die of starvation. His brother has cooked a meal, and he wants some something to eat. He says, well, I'll give you this pot of porridge, but there's there's condition to it. Well, what's, I want the birthright. Well, I don't have That's not a problem. I don't need that. I'm going to die if I don't eat. Then it's time to, 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 to be blessed. How does he get the blessing? This dad bring him in and say, you know what? God said this is the way it's supposed to be. So come in, son. I need to bless you because God said that Esau is going to serve you. This is, this is what we need to do. Okay, let's, let's, let's do this right because this is what God says needs to happen. Is that what took place? Well, how did he get the birth? How did he get the blessing? How did he deceive Dad? Mama did it. Mama knew how to deceive him. She'd been deceiving him a long time. Neither one of them treated each other with dignity and respect. Nobody was a diamond at that house. They're all sandals. You just wear them. You put them on, wear them. You step in whatever you need to step in. You kick whatever you need to kick. It doesn't matter what happens in their life because... They're not important anymore. They're not valuable anymore. You don't have to treat them with dignity and respect. So, how does he get the birthright? He smells like a goat. He has to kill an animal, skin it, get the blood off of it, so you can't. But you can get the odor because that dad's blind. He can't see. He's got cataracts. He, he's He's dim in vision. So he's, and Dad, this is not the right voice, but it's the right smell. You smell like him. But come over here, let me. And, and, now, that's, that's, my mind has some trouble wrapped around some of this stuff. Okay? How in the world does a human arm feel like the hair on a goat? Yeah, you feel like him too. Who, who did dad get bonded to? Did he get bonded to the mama's boy? No. He got bonded to the man's man, the one that lives in the woods and that don't ever, ever wash. It smells like a goat. That's dad. He wanted to be a man so bad that he's going to have to become a man through his son. Real happy family here. Real good family here. Deception takes place. Mom knows that that older one's going to temper and he's going to kill him. And, and so, okay, son, you got the blessing. Now you got to leave. Go, go to my brother's house. She sent him home and told him where to go. Go to my uncle, go to my brother Laban's house, and, and you live there. So he shows up at Laban's house, and the first thing he saw was Rachel. And when he saw her, you need to read the Bible description of the woman. She was pleasant to the eyes, what the Scripture says. She was a, a looker. She, I could use some descriptive term, but it, it's pretty graphic the way it's written. Okay, She was put together right, and his eyes saw all of that and said, Wow, Laban, I, that's who I want to marry Okay, but to marry her, you've got to work for me seven years. Now, they're not nomads. 
Seven years you're going to live at this house. You're going to work for seven years. Seven years he talked to her. He heard her voice. He listened to her walk. He knew. Seven years he spent in her presence. And, and he should have learned a little bit about her, shouldn't he? Seven years is over. Laban said, okay, it's time for a wedding. Now, I can wrap my brain around a whale swallowing a man and then spitting him up, and I can wrap my brain around water being parted five miles wide for four million people to get across in one night. That, that, that water wouldn't part in the Red Sea just wide enough for them to go two by two. It, it had to be five miles wide to get them all across in one night. There's too many of them. So I, 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 can, I can fathom that. But I, I, I can't wrap my brain around the idea that a man can spend 12 hours with a woman and never take a peek to see if he's got the right one. I, I, do you understand what he thought of her? She's not a woman or wife. She's just a trophy. He didn't care about her. He cared about himself. And in the morning when the daylight shows up and he rolls over and looks, what are you doing here? Well, I married you. No, no, no. And Laban, why would you do this to me? Well, we have a custom that the older has. Well, that's not who we're great. Well, I'll give you the other one, but you've got to work for me seven more years. Now, he didn't wait seven years to get the next one. Next weekend, we have the second ceremony. Now we get two wives. They're sisters married to the same man. He hates one, loves the other, despises one. Okay, he's been there seven years. He's going to work seven years to get the next one. At the end of that seven years, he wants to leave, and, and, and Laban says, no, that's not fair. You need to work for me seven more years so that we can work out all this debt and all this stuff. And so at the end of 21 years, now he gets to go home. Okay, think about this. Take seven off. Fourteen years is the time frame of 11 children being born. We get the first child born to Leah. She becomes expecting quickly. Rachel can't have children or doesn't bear children quick enough. And so she sees sister got a child. So here comes concubine. And so David now gets third wife and she produces a child quickly. And, and Leah don't want sister out doing her. So she gives concubine number two. And so now we get wife number four, and, and she's got a child quickly. And, and, and then the, all these kids they keep, keep being multiplied. And, and in a short period of time, there are 11 kids show up. 11. Those 11 kids, yeah, the oldest one can't be more than 14. You understand? The oldest one can't be more than 14. And the odds are they're just all stacked together. You've got four women. 
So we, we've got them stair steps. We've got them months apart. We've got this one, and three or four months later, we've got this one, three or four months later, we've got this one, three or four months later, we've got this one. And here's all these kids here in a short period of time. They go back, they leave, go home, and, and, and they meet brother, and, and the battle with, or the, the, the confrontation with brother and, and Jacob's name being changed to Israel because he had an encounter with God. And now they decide to stay there. And he digs that well, buys that property. But he has a daughter. And she was beautiful. And apparently she came from Leah. And she goes out to see the world. But the world sees her. And the king's son rapes her. Now, dad has been shamed and embarrassed, and the king says, you know what, my son's wrong, so we, we, we want my son to marry your daughter. That's the only way to make this right. And they agree on one condition. What is the condition? They circumcise every male in that town. They agree. It happens. And those 11 juvenile delinquents killed every man in that town. And they couldn't have been more than 17. The oldest one couldn't have been more than 17 or 18 years of age. And those juvenile delinquents killed every man in that town, embarrassed Jacob, shamed Jacob, caused Jacob all kinds of problems as a result of their behavior. Now, that's a really healthy family, isn't it? Abraham didn't create or, or, or value Sarah. Isaac doesn't value Rebecca. Jacob doesn't value Leah, doesn't value Rachel or the two concubines. He, he, there's no value there. By the way, if you've had four more sexual partners in your life, medical science says that we're sexual addicts. We don't relate to people. We just use them. Because God didn't intend us for us to have multiple partners. Anthropologists will tell you, and they're atheists. They don't believe in God. They'll tell you that human beings are only designed for one mate. We can't handle two, three, four, or five. One mate is all humans are equipped to handle at one time. That's it. Well, here's Jacob with four wives. What happens in his family? Well, we get our first recorded case of child abuse. Ten brothers decide they don't like the youngest one because he thinks he's better than everybody else and he's always seeing these dreams and visions, so they sold him as a slave. That's child abuse. They knew where he'd wind up. They knew what happened to him. But the only way God could protect and keep Joseph, who is a type of Jesus Christ. The only way that God could protect Joseph from that family was to get him out of it. He had to wind up in Egypt so he wouldn't be contaminated by that bunch that he was living his life with because they had life so messed up that God sends him to Egypt. And Egypt, his life changes. 
So David has how many wives? Fourteen. David don't know how to relate to him. You know, once fourteen, what, what's seven hundred or three hundred concubines? What's a thousand? And that's the man that said it's better to live on the housetop than in the house with a brawling woman. Well, if anybody understood that problem, he did. But he created himself. He, he warped everybody's life. And that's the way man was, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse till Jesus shows up. Jesus walks on the scene and says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I didn't create. Eve was not created. The woman was not created to become the property of a man. He don't own her. He doesn't. He's supposed to love her, cherish her. And treat her with dignity and respect. Peter says, husbands, giving honor. See, that was contrary to their way of thinking. Women were not to be honored. They were not to be valued. Husbands, live with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel. That word weaker doesn't mean she's less than men. It means she's smaller. It defines her frame size, her body mass. She's smaller than the male. The male's usually bigger than the female. His, his frame is wider. Her, her shoulders will never get as wide as a man's shoulders can get. They're, they're, they're weaker. They're not less. They're smaller. Giving honor to the wife as the smaller vessel being heirs together. God doesn't see you as two people. He sees you as one. You get married, God sees you together. Being heirs together. Of the grace of life, that your prayers, what? Be not hindered. The only thing that hinders prayer on this side of the cross is a husband and wife can't get along. That's what wrecks prayers on this side of the cross. Value defines everything about life. If my wife is a diamond, then I treat her with dignity and respect. She's got a right to know where I'm at, who I'm with, and what I'm doing. I have men tell me, well, ain't no woman going to tell me what to do. I just laugh at them and say, really? Nobody's going to tell you what to do? Get in your car, pull out of the driveway, and see how many times you're told what to do before you get home. How many stop signs are you going to stop at? How many red lights are you going to stop at? How many times are you going to be told what to do before you ever get to where you're going? Nobody's going to tell you what to do? Yeah, we're, we, we deceive ourselves. See, if my wife is valuable, I don't see her you know, I heard a man say one day, she, we, he was, we were speaking at a men's conference. He got up and said, and he, his introduction to this men's conference, he said, there's two kinds of men in this world. He says, there's henpecked and liars. Oh, come on, give me a break. Henpecked and liars. What a dumb statement. If, if I value my wife where I consider her and in my decisions, you're going to call me henpecked? I'm going to call you stupid. Because I think she's important enough to give her a phone call when I leave to come home so she don't worry about what's happened to me. I'm on the road a lot. I talk to a lot of people. I'm in dangerous positions on a regular basis. I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with females, and I understand that's a dangerous position. And and I recognize that. So I give my wife permission to call me. If I'm going into a counseling session where I'm not comfortable with who I'm counseling, 
I'll call and tell her. I'll say, okay, I need you to call me 15 minutes after the hour, 30 minutes after the hour, 45 minutes. I want, I want you to give. And when she calls, if my phone goes off, they didn't care if I'm talking to you folks. Okay. If my phone goes off and it's her, I don't care if I'm preaching. I'm going to take time out. She's not going to call me. She knows what I'm doing because before I walk into church, I've called her and told her, okay, church fiction start. But she knows if an emergency comes up and I'm not anywhere close to her to help protect her, she knows she can call me at any time. And it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I'm stopping because she's a diamond. She's not in a pair of shoes I'm going to wear. And I have made it my purpose for the rest of her life to spoil her as rotten as I can. Why not? If that's what you do with diamonds. That's not what you do with old pair of shoes. How valuable are people? If they're valuable, you treat them totally differently if they're not valuable. And it's not about henpecked liars. I'm not henpecked. My children are valuable. If my children call... I'll take the phone call. If my grandchildren call, they know what I do. I got a phone call from one of them not long ago. And she said, Papa, where are you at? I said, well, I'm in California preaching. She said, you've been going entirely too long. It's time for you to come home. And I went home the next day. What's wrong with that? See, we, we think God says we put everything else before Family, that's a lie. You better put your family before everything else because that's God's order. Adam didn't do that with his wife. Abraham didn't do it with his wife. But Jesus Christ did it with the bride. That's the church. Here's how you, you make sure that they're faithful to you. and they look, they'll, you got to show them you'll die for them. You show them you'll die for them. You're not having these other issues. Now, some of this stuff's hard to preach in America. We got too many rights. Americans hate part of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't we despise it. Matter of fact, I I don't know if I've ever heard, heard a preacher preach about it. See part of the Sermon on the Mount is thy brother smite thee on the right cheek. Turn the other. You ever heard anybody take that for a sermon? No, because it irritates Americans. We got rights. And as rights, I got a right to say anything I want to say, anytime I want to say it, anywhere I want. I got First Amendment rights. Folks, those don't work at home. Your Constitution was not meant for your house. It does not work at your house. Throw that stupid thing away. It's a lie to start with. It was based on a lie. And nobody's ever exposed the lie it was based on. And the lie said, all men are created under God with certain enable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the what? The what? Pursuit. You know what that means? Happiness is running. You've got to chase it. You want to find happiness? You're going to have to run the stupid thing down because it's going to run from you. Every time you get close, you're going to have to pursue it all your life. That's totally against the Bible. 
Paul, standing before Agrippa in Acts 26, said, Oh, Agrippa, I think myself happy. That's a novel idea. You're not going to chase happiness. You're going to create happiness. You want to be happy? Then just make up your mind to be happy. You can be happy anywhere you want to be. Paul said, I've learned what your state I am. There with to be content. I've learned how to be abound. I've learned how to be a base. I've learned how to have nothing. I've learned how to have everything. It doesn't matter what state I'm in. My environment will not predict my happiness. Happiness is a choice. It is not something you're entitled to. Now, my world says I am. So we drag all that junk into our home, and we think, i got a right to say anything I want to say. Well, that don't work either. That's the dumbest thing you ever do, because your tongue is a flamethrower. James said it's a fire from hell. It's going to leave scarce territory. Go ahead and say those things. They, they recline. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Liar. You can beat me with a stick, and I can recover. You can say words to me and scar me for life. There's nothing more deadly than words. Tell her you don't love her no more, or she's not lovable, or you hate her, you wish you hadn't married her, or tell him you don't like him no more. He don't please you. See, it's not a devil. The devil didn't put those words in your mouth. You can't speak before you think. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the Jesus wouldn't let us get by with all these dumb excuses we have. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaker. What did Jesus say about treasures? Did he say anything about stuff that's valuable? Where your treasure is, if you find a treasure in the field, what do you do? You hide it first. Then you sell all that you have, and you do what? You buy the treasure. You buy the field. You buy every snake in the field, every scorpion in the field, every spider in the field, every dead animal in the field. You buy whatever is in the field because there's a treasure in it. Marriage is buying a field that might have stuff in it that stings you occasionally. <laughs> you might get bitten on an occasion. You might swell up a little bit from getting bit. But you make a choice. Why? They're valuable. And when they're valuable, you treat them with dignity and respect. When they're not valuable, then you expose them to the world to be destroyed. Value defines everything that you do in life. Value is what life's about. Let's go to the next one. I've already used all those scriptures. What are values? Values is the vault and security system you develop to put a diamond in. It's not just a vault. It's got to have a security system. If my wife is valuable, then I'm going to build a vault for her to live in to make sure that her life's not destroyed. And there will be a security system to make sure nobody can get in and wreck it. If my children are valuable, I create a vault for them to live in so their life's not destroyed. I will define the value of everybody. Values are principles you develop to protect what's valuable. And there are nine principles I want to talk about today 
that define life. First one is safety. Why is safety such an important issue? Why, why is safety so important in our lives? Because your most powerful instinct is survival. You can't see your world. You can only see less than 130 degrees of your world. You can't see all of it. I can't see, but I can see all of your world. I can see who's beside you, who's behind you. I can see what's over you, what's under you. See, I, I can't see but this far. I lose vision at this point. I can see this far. I lose vision at this point. I can see this far. When I'm looking straight ahead, I, go, I can see less than 130 degrees of a 360-degree world. If my wife is standing with her back to me and she's looking in the past and I'm looking in the future, together we can only see 260 degrees of our world. I can't see my world. Your survival instincts reside in your brain stem. It's the very bottom of the brain. Everything going in your brain, coming out of your brain, is filtered through survival. While we're sitting here today, our brains have never checked out. You listen, you're listening to me. You're trying to hear what I'm saying. But occasionally there have been noises that have caught our attention that we have paused a moment to figure out what the noise was. At one point, there was noises of people talking that got a little loud, and it distracted us a little bit. But, and there was another case of where some sirens went off, and, and that just because my brain is constantly monitoring this environment to make sure I'm safe. I have five ways of knowing I'm safe. The first one is my eyes. I'm looking. Because I can't see my world and because vision is not this 130 degrees, vision is really just a little circle about this big in the middle of each eyeball. And when I move that from person to person, if, if I look at this gentleman, everybody else in this room is blurred. I can see your forms, your shapes, your colors, but I can't see you. I can see details of him. If I look at him, then he goes blurred, and everybody else goes blurred. The only way I can see all of you at one time is to get far enough away that I can put you all in that little circle. When I get that far away, I can't see details. So while I'm looking... If there's movement over here in the peripheral part of my vision, my brain starts going through its inventory of, of stuff that it's stored. Well, that's an arm moving, or that's a child moving, or, or, or that's a, a balloon that's 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 a ribbon. That, that that that's something's moving over there. Is that a bug? Is that an animal? And if I can't figure it out, my head's going to turn. And I don't care how focused you think you are. When the brain can't figure out what's happening over here, that head's going to turn to find out because you're going to protect yourself. You're going to look. When we hear these noises, there, there's, how much noise is in this room right now? There's a lot. Water fountain kicked on. Air conditioner's blowing. But we've tuned all those out because we're trying to focus. But we haven't tuned them out. We're listening. The instant the ear picks up a noise that's unusual, say, I'm going to stop. It doesn't matter if I'm talking to you. I'm going to stop. Uh, several times when I've been at this point in, in this lesson, lightning has struck. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. Several times 
that, that I've been teaching about how the ears listening for noise, there's been this loud boom or some noise happened and everybody in the room is just startled because we're always listening. Our nose is always picking up odors. We're smelling for things. If we start detecting an odor that's, that's that shouldn't be in this room. Where, where's that come from? Especially if there's a little smoke in it. And you pick up smoke. I don't care how deep asleep you are. The moment your nose picks up the smell of smoke, it's going to try to. You're going to start waking up to figure out, well, something's wrong here. If you walk up and touch something, it's hot. What do you do? What if it's real cold? Do the same thing. What if it gives you a buzz? The least of our senses are taste. What if you put something in your mouth that tastes funny? What do you do? Spit it out. You know, chew it up. You know, eat it. It's coming out. Why? It tells you you're not safe. You're, you're created to survive. That's your most powerful need is safety. If you don't feel safe, the only option you have is to live in survival. And survival has two options. What are they? Fight or flight. That's the only two available. When survival kicks in, what are you going to do? Run as fast as you can to get away or come on, buddy, let's go. Survival will never allow you to change, be different. Survival won't allow you your life to become better. Survival just keeps you trapped in this world where all you can do is just get up every day and get through that day and never become anything more than what you are right now. That's survival. And America has been living in survival for a long time. 9-11 messed us up. It messed us up bad. We have been living in survival since 9-11. People don't trust anybody anymore. You, you walk in the airport, you're scrutinized. I have been pulled out of a line, padded down, probably three or four hundred times in airports because I might look like a terrorist, I guess. I don't know, but I get patted down on a regular basis because why? We don't trust nobody no more. And I watched an, about an 85-year-old woman get patted down one day, and I'm thinking, come on, folks, seriously. Does Grandma look like she could? But we're so terrified of profiling that we're going to make sure that we just pat down everybody and you know, we're afraid that we're going to offend somebody, but yet we're also afraid that, uh, that we're going to let something happen. And so we're living with two fears, and we don't know how to balance either one of them. We don't know how to balance the fear of offense and the fear of we're going to get hurt. And We're just in survival. People live in panic on a regular basis. You get on an airplane, we, we, we don't feel safe anymore. Our children don't even play outside anymore. When I was a kid, I roamed all over my town. I lived in a town of 100-plus thousand people in North Texas that had a huge military base. We was the number seven target in America during the Cold War because there were nuclear silos on that military base right outside of our town. And, and we had all these drills at school where you go stand and get in the hallway and put your head down. Now, come on, folks. That's going to protect you from an atomic bomb? Come on. We have them all the time. Cause, but 
We roamed the town. I rode my bicycle everywhere. Well, my grandchildren don't even play in the front yard unless there's an adult outside. Why? To me, pedophiles. To me, evil people. We just live in a world full of terror. And we don't trust people anymore. And we're becoming more paranoid with time. Why? Because Americans don't value anybody else. And if you'll listen to politicians, they're making statements that allow them to manipulate you. And the statement they make on a regular basis is that we're a nation of the rule of law. Has anybody heard that statement? That's a lie. Go to any law school and ask a professor there to tell you what we're a nation of. We're a nation of the rule of value, not the rule of law. If you don't value people and you don't value someone else's possessions, it don't matter if you steal them because it's not valued. That, that person is not important. You know, I remember as a kid that my dad would drive up in downtown Wichita Falls. We didn't have air conditioning in our cars. Leave the windows down and leave the keys in the ignition. And we'd get out and go shopping for hours. We'd come back and our car's still there. Well, if you don't have it locked down, tied down in your front yard, everybody believes that you don't need it. <laughs> so we don't value what other people have. If, if I value what you have, I, I'm not trying to take them from you. I'm not trying to, to be covetous of, of what you have achieved in life. I start looking and say, you know, if, if you can achieve that, there's, there's this much possibility I can achieve the same thing if I choose to. I don't become jealous of your accomplishments. I don't envy what you've done. I start saying, okay, you're a valuable person. God has blessed you. because You know, God made a promise to Abraham, and we're spiritual Abraham's children. Okay? And that same promise that he promised to them, he's promised to us. I'll bless them that bless you. I'll curse them that curse you. Through all you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. But we've got offended by life, and so we're not letting God bless us. And we, we've, we've lost value. We don't value other people's things. And as a result, we can come into church and look around and say, Wow, that's my next husband, or that's my next wife. And that's who God wants me to marry. And they're married to somebody else at the time, but God's going to fix it so that they're not married to him anymore. I've heard that thousands of times. That's not an exaggeration. I'm thinking, oh, come on, folks. Why would God give you something he already gave someone else? What kind of father says, eh, you've had that long enough. Here, it's yours. That's evil, isn't it? But we've, we've forgotten how valuable people are. And when people are valuable, I treat them with dignity and respect. I don't, I don't disrespect them. I don't do things to hurt them. You know, I'm not trying to wreck their lives. I'm not trying to destroy them. I'm trying to make their lives better because they're my brother. They're my family. I walk into churches, and the pastor says, See that guy back there? Yeah, I'll see this guy over here. They're brothers. They hadn't talked in 10 years. They don't, they don't even get along. They can come to church and shout and run out, but they will not have a conversation with each other. Uh, how many pastors are here, preachers are here today? 
How much of your time is spent with people who can't get along with other people? Why can't I get along with somebody? Because I don't value them. See, I'm convinced that the only difference between a child and an adult is an opinion. If you don't have the right to have an opinion, you're reduced to childhood. We don't have to think alike. We can have a different opinion about things and, and not have issues. I have three brothers. We're, uh, one of them passed away. Um, I have two that's still alive. But we're not alike. I have a sister. None of us are alike. But I still love them. My brother that's my pastor, he's, he's four years younger than me. I took care of him as a kid. I bought his clothes. I got a good job when I got out of high school. And, and, and so mom and dad weren't able to, to provide things for my, my family. So I didn't mind buying them clothes. I'd take them shopping. I'd get my paycheck. I'd take them to the store and buy him a suit or buy him my sister a dress or, or they wanted something. I, I didn't mind doing that. That's my brother. That's my sister. I loved them. I, now he's my pastor. He gets to tell me what to do. And we're not alike. He's Mr. Personality. He could sell snow cones to Eskimos. I mean, he, he's, he's just an incredibly outgoing person who loves people. He, he, he loves people. so he, he spends time at the mall. He loves to shop. He, he shops so much that the salesman at Dillard's has his phone number. And when things go on sale, they'll call him and say, Mr. Hughes, We've got a suit your size, and I think it's something you might like, and it's 50%, it's, it's 80% off the price, and then it's another 50% off that. If you come in right now, so he go buy a suit for. I did it again. Or <laughs> 50 bucks. And he called me one day and said, James, what size suit you wear? I said, well, I wear uh, 43. He said, okay, they got one here that really looks nice. I'll buy it for you. It's okay. Saved me a trip to the mall. Bought me the suit, tie. That's him. I get on an airplane, fly 18 hours, never say a word to the person beside me. I don't invade their space. I don't want to invade mine. I'm I'm real introvert. I'm I'm not outgoing. I'm a very task oriented person. My my brother Charles, he's the 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 vice president of Fox 26 in Houston, Texas, and he's over their engineering department. He, he he's an, he, he's a geek. <laughs> He, he's all this electronic nerd. I mean, he can figure out all that. He knows all that stuff. He knows all the latest technology. He knows how to put it together. He can walk in this room, fix it, and just a matter of listening to it for a few moments. And if he calls you, and he'll say, James, and he'll start asking you a question, and when he gets through, the phone goes click. There's no buy. There's nothing. It just click. It doesn't matter if you need to say something back to him. It doesn't matter if, if there's more. It, when he's through, it's over. Boom. And if there's any more conversation that needs to happen, you've got to call him back and say, Charles, I wasn't through you. Oh, I'm sorry. But I just, we're not alike. So we agree to allow each other to have a difference of opinion. We don't have to think alike. See, in Pentecost, we call each other brother and sister, but what we really mean is clone. If you don't think like me and act like me, you're really not my brother. We don't have to think alike. There's things I like and things I don't like. Eight hours at the mall is not a good day for me. I can go shopping for Christmas on December 24th, and that's usually the day I go. And in 30 minutes, get 
all the presents I need for my wife. I took my son with me a couple years ago, and we walked in the mall, and I went to this store, the next one, the next one, and we were out in 30 minutes. I had nine presents, and he walks in the house when we get home. He says, guys, you won't believe what Dad just did. He bought nine presents in 30 minutes. I don't have a clue. And they all started laughing. I said, I've been going to that mall with that lady for a whole year, and every time I walk by a store, she says, that's what I want for Christmas. So that just went down on my list. Live with them according to what? Knowledge. What? Knowledge. No, knowledge. When you hear something, okay, yeah, that'd be nice. Goes on the list. I like that. Goes on the list. Knowledge. Why? She's valuable. I found a treasure. I found an incredible lady that I want her to remember she's always a diamond. I want her life to be whole, not damaged or broke or defective. So I'm going to choose to make sure she has the greatest possible life she could have because she's valuable to me. She's not a piece of junk. I don't put her on, wear her. I treat her with dignity and respect. She can have a difference of opinion. There are things she likes I don't like. I don't like spaghetti. I like all the other Italian food, but spaghetti I just don't like. I have never liked it. I don't like its taste. I don't like its texture. I just don't like it. But there are 11 people at my house that love it. My daughter married an Italian who's got a secret family recipe. They don't taste no different than the stuff in the jar to me. I mean, it's just. Now, I can drive in my driveway and smell it. And I can walk in the house and say, oh, no, not again. Come on. You know I don't like that stuff. What in the world don't you fix me something I like? That's what jerks do. I can smell it coming in the drive. If I park in the garage, I can smell it inside. I just walk in the house, hug everybody, kiss everybody, and go get my plate, put my noodles on it put the sauce on it, and occasionally get a little bit of ranch dressing and put on top of it. I can change its flavor. I mean, I eat it. I just, why? My son used to beg his mother to make it. He'd eat it for breakfast, supper, dinner, breakfast, supper. He ate it until the pot was gone. He'd beg her, make a big one, Mama. And she'd indulge him because that's a boy. So he got spaghetti at least once a week. Why? Because he's valuable. My mother, you may have never heard of this. I talk about some places and they they think, what in the world? But in Oklahoma and North Texas, one of the common breakfast foods was biscuits and chocolate gravy. And it's made out of Hershey's powdered chocolate milk, cornstarch, and sugar. It's real sweet. Well, it's put over biscuits, and, and that was just something my mom cooked all the time, and so I grew up with it. And, and she taught my kids how to love the stuff, and my grandkids even love it. And so my wife's learned how to make it, and, and my grandkids come to my house and say, Mozzie, in the morning for breakfast, would you, would you cook me some chocolate gravy? Surely. 
chocolate gravy shows up at my house. Why? Because they're, why would you take a hammer to a diamond because you don't like it? You, you need a bunch more, so let's, let's make a bunch of little ones out of it. Why? It's too valuable. Values protect. Safety is the most important need we have in life. I want to use the board for the next little bit. Um, in addressing the importance of safety and some of the developmental issues that happen in our lives at certain times and how they affect us, uh, the psalmist, not psalmist, Proverbs says, uh, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. My view of me actually defines me. Back in the 70s and 80s, if you were going to become a public school teacher, uh, you had to take a course in college called child development. And in it, they taught several things that were taught simply by theory and not by proof. Uh, they had no way of proving some of these things, but it was their theory that this is the way development took place. And they were convinced that when a child is born, its brain is empty, that there's nothing in it. There's no information stored. It's blank. And they called that by a Latin term called a tabula rusa, which means blank slate. We know that is not true today. We know that memory begins in the third trimester conception. By six months of gestation, uh, that child's brain is fully developed and begins recording data from that point until birth. At birth, the child is born with a knowledge of the voice of mother the voice of dad, if there are siblings in the house, it's born with a knowledge of the voice of the siblings. If mom has been around her parents during her pregnancy or during that point of pregnancy, the child will be born with a knowledge of the voice of grandparents. If she's been around her in-laws, then the child will be born with the knowledge of those grandparents and the child comes in this world with, with a knowledge of voices, of things it's heard even before it's born. So we're not born blank slate. Second thing they taught is that by six years of age, that, well, that don't work very well. 80% of all your life skills were developed. Job skills, marriage skills, conflict resolution skills, habits, nature, temperament. By six, 80% of everything you are as a human being is fully developed. Well, we know that that is not true. It's actually 85%. By six years of age, 85% of everything I am as a human being is fully developed. By nine years of age, it's 90%. And by 12 years of age, it's 
Remember the scripture that says, Tramp a child in ways you go, when he's old, he will not depart? How old do you think old is? 40, 50, 60? 12. It's a celebration of adulthood called Bar Mitzvah or 13. When they lose, leave that age of 12, when they reach 13, they become an adult. And there's an incredible celebration that is. Uh, that happens that the child is taught that they are an adult. Now, I am not Jewish, and all I know is what I've read and studied, but from what I understand, that it's, it's not a, uncommon for there to be a custom that a rabbi comes to the house, and after the party and the rabbi is there, that the rabbi give the child a lecture on being an adult could last as much as an hour. And sometimes... During the celebration, the dad will come and stand in front of the child and will pray a prayer uh, according to some of the material I've read that kind of goes like this. Oh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I thank you for delivering me from the responsibility of my child today. I am no longer accountable for their behavior as of this day. From this day forward, all their behavior is placed on their shoulder, and thank you for delivering me from this responsibility. If that happens, that's, that, that, that's quite an incredible statement because that, that placing of responsibility on someone's shoulders is one of the most important things that happens in life. And by 12 years of age, 95% of everything I am as a human is developed. 95% of the time, the issues of a marriage have nothing to do with the marriage but have to do with the first 12 years. We also know that when a child is born, and I will represent the male with a square and the female with a circle, and everything above the line is the influence of a male, everything below the line is the influence of a female. When a child is born, the child's eyes do not focus, cannot see. The pupils haven't learned to dilate, and so the eye hasn't developed its ability to perceive detail. Everything's blurred. And when the child is born, it's born with a knowledge of who mother is. It knows mother's smell. It knows mother's heart rate. It knows mother's voice. It's very aware who mother is. And when it's born, for the first two years of its life, it doesn't matter if it's a male or female, it's attached to mother. So its primary influence is mother. By two years of age, the child is starting to learn its sexuality. Now, the gay society would like to say, no, this is real, none of this works. Uh, but there's more evidence to support what I'm telling you than their stupid theory that it, they're born that way. And there's absolutely no research that can ever prove that. And all you got to do is think to prove it. If it's genetic... How does it get from generation A to generation B? If it's genetic, okay? How does it going to get from this generation to the next one? One of those has to be produced. That's not possible. Two men can't produce a child and two women can't produce a child. So if it's genetic, it would have been filtered out gene pool generations ago. It cannot be genetic. It's a choice. They won't tell you that your brain 
will match the environment you live in if you live in it long enough, and it'll support your belief system of what you believe. So if a male acts like a female for nine months, his brain will cause his body to produce more estrogen, and he will start becoming more feminine. If a female acts like a male for nine months, her brain will start producing more testosterone and will make her more masculine because your brain will adapt to whatever you're trying to force it to become. It has that ability. It has plasticity. It has the ability to change based upon the environment you're in and the things you're doing over a repeated period of time. Uh, and I'll get back to that in a little bit. At two years of age, the child becomes attached to the same-sex parent. The little boy become dad's shadow. The little girl's going to become mom's shadow. The little girl's going to want to be with mom, do what mom's doing. If mom's in the kitchen cooking, just want to be there helping mom or participate with what mom's doing. Whatever mom's doing in the house, the little girl's wanting to follow along, do whatever she's doing. If if it's the little boy, he's going to want to be with dad. He's going to, If dad's in a garage working on something, he wants to be out there. He wants to know how the tools work. He wants to be involved with the tools. If he's in the yard mowing grass, he's wanting to follow him. He's, he's going to mimic dad. You'll watch him putting on dad's shoes and trying to walk in them because dad becomes his robot. And he stays attached to dad until puberty happens. And puberty usually starts taking place somewhere around nine years of age. At that point, he becomes attached to mom, and she becomes attached to dad. She'll flirt with dad. She'll hold dad's hand. She won't dad pay attention to her. All of a sudden, all these emotions have awakened in their life. And God created a family to be a place where kids learn about themselves without being injured, wounded, violated. They need to understand these things. Well, I'm in college studying all this, and I have a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old. So my kids are in the middle of all this stuff. And I'm learning about it. So... I'd been out traveling, speaking, and, and had come home. And we were sitting in the living room, my wife and I, and my son was out playing, uh, I think it was in the springtime of the year, somewhere around April and May. It was real nice. The trees were had all their leaves on them, and, and kids. Anthony had been out playing with his buddies across the street. And he come in, and he noticed I was in the house. He said, Dad, when did you get in? I said, oh, just a little while ago. And he said, I'm glad to see you, Dad. And he walked in and gave me a hug, and he walked off. And I said, hey, Anthony. He turned and looked at me. I said, when's the last time I told you how handsome you were? He got mad at me. <clears throat> Stormed off down the hall. Oh, damn! And slammed the door. Bam! My wife's sitting there beside me. She said, what in the world did you do that for? The Bible says, provoke not your children to wrath. You just provoked him. What did you do that for? I said, well, I just want to find something out. Uh, and I told her what I was studying. She said, okay. So when he comes back out, I want you to do to him what I just did. Let's see what happens. So he stayed in his room for over an hour. Finally, he comes out of his room after about an hour, and he walks in the room. And my wife said, hey, Anthony. Yeah, Mom. When's the last time I told you how handsome you were? He stood up straight, poked that little bony chest out, grinned from ear to ear, and said, oh, Mom, do you think so? Yeah, Anthony, I think you're really handsome. She went, he went to the bathroom, combed his hair for about 30 minutes. It's mom's affection, mom's approval, and mom's recognition in puberty that makes a man out of her son. Dad has no power to make a man out of a boy. 
God didn't design him to be attached to a male. He designed him to be attached to a female. And it's a female that awakens his identity and makes him aware of who he is. So it's mom being involved in his life during puberty that gives him his sense of value, of worth, of, of who he is. Mom can't make a woman out of her daughter. It's dad's affection, dad's approval, dad's recognition during puberty that develops her into a healthy young lady who understands who she is and how valuable she is. Research says, and the church hadn't done none of this. This is what the world's teaching us. And, and schools like Berkeley, which is one of the most liberal places in the world, uh, research is telling us that the only reason our children get involved in sex before marriage is for two reasons. They've either been sexually abused or the opposite sex parent checked out. If mom is not available for a son, he's going to do one of two things. He's going to withdraw and have a real difficult time connecting to a woman, or he's going to become really aggressive and see how many he can conquer. And he won't just have one female friend. He'll have hundreds of female friends, and he'll get real close to them, but when it gets too close, he'll drop them and go to the next one. And when that one gets too close, he'll drop it and go to the next one. When that one gets too close... He'll never connect because she never made a man out of him. If dad's not available, then the female will go to her peers to get the affection, approval, and recognition. She will give her body to a male just to be held, touched, and loved because dad is not giving her the affection, approval he should be giving her, so she's going to turn to her peers. If dad is involved in her life, and mom and dad know where their kids are at, what they're doing, and who they're with at all times. Drug, sex, and alcohol will never be a problem in your children's life. The only reason our kids are having problems with drug, sex, and alcohol is because mom and dads check out. And when they get to teenage years and they start understanding, discovering the reality of life and that they're, that, that they're, not, they're not living in a fantasy world, then all of a sudden they start having issues. They start challenging the rules. They start wanting to know why. If mom and dad stay consistent, their kids won't get involved in stuff. You don't have to worry about drugs as long as you know where they're at, who they're with, what they're doing. If you're involved in their life and they know that you're concerned about them, family pressure is more powerful than peer pressure. That's a lie. Peer pressure will not control your kids unless you check out. And you just give up and say, well, I'm tired of the fight or the battle. I, I don't want to deal with the issues. And you just throw up your hand and quit. If you do, then your world's going to control them. If you don't, you control them. And they'll always be part of your life if you stay involved in their life. This period of time is incredibly important. It usually lasts somewhere around 14 years of age. At 14, they make that switch back. She's going to become mom's friend. He's going to become dad's friends. And that's where they'll stay the rest of their life. This time frame is really critical. This time frame is critical. What happens in a kid's life if divorce takes place during that time frame? Well, th that's where our problem's coming from. See, that, that, that's, that's what's the, at the root of all the issues in America uh, that we're that we're dealing with today. It's the breakup of the home, and 
you know, research says that uh, that eighty percent of children raised in a single parent family raise their children in single parent families because they think that's normal. And I'm going to explain how that happens. That's what this this next chart's about. Okay, let's look at a time chart of American history from 1900 to present day. What I want to look at is the divorce rate in America and how it changed. From 1900 to 1940, the divorce rate in America was nearly a straight line. It rarely fluctuated. It actually fluctuated less than three-tenths of a point. The only statistic on marriage and divorce is kept by the, the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia. They're the one who keeps the records on uh, how many divorces we have. And, and the divorces are based upon a number of per thousand. So it takes a lot of interpolation to really figure out what's actually happened in a society. But from 1900 to 1940, that number barely fluctuated. From 1940... To 1946, that number spiked 3.6 points. From 1946 to 1950, there's a drastic fall, and it fell back to the same level as 1940. It starts increasing from 1950 to 1960, but 1960, 1966, we get another spike. This time it doesn't fall down. From 1970, it just takes off. 1980, we get another spike. And then it has just taken off from there. Okay. 40, 60, here, here's spike one, here's spike two, here's spike three. 20 years, 20 years. What happened? Well, World War I didn't do it. It's from 1914 to 1920. Movies? Movements? That's 1960. That's second spot. That's my generation. I know about that one. I lived it. What happened? It was the war. But it wasn't war itself. For the first time in the history of man, mother was actively recruited out of the home in the workforce. There were these little signs of Uncle Sam with that white hat, long beard, with his hand pointing out and saying, Ladies, we need you in our factories. Our men are at war, and we need your help. So mothers just left home, invaded the workforce by the thousands. What this doesn't show is that the adultery rate was four times that. If you divide 36 points by 0.03, that tells you the percentage of jump. The jump was 12 Hundred percent. The adultery weight was forty-eight hundred percent. Did we just become incredibly immoral? No. See, God never intended for men and women to be friends. 
intended for them to be married. You cannot put a man and a woman in the same environment that are not husband and wives and expect them to stay in that environment for a very long period of time without them developing a deep bonding relationship. It's going to happen. Mother went in the workforce. There were men still here that were working factories. They start conversations. See, affairs happen. There are three categories of an affair. First one happens because you meet somebody, you start a conversation with them. That conversation just starts continuing. And over a period of time, and you know, there's part of my notes has that stair step of conversation somewhere in it. And as you talk to them, you start down the stair step of communication, and it starts off very casual in the beginning. You know, you, you talk about things that are not important, things that are not valuable. You talk about weather, politics. See, the only tool I have to discover whether you like me or you don't like me is a conversation. And conversations require eye contact. And if there's eye contact in conversation, Jesus said the eye is the light of the body. It's the window of the soul. It's the eye that lets you look into somebody's heart. And when you're talking to them, if they make eye contact and they don't act surprised or shocked or offended or angry at, at your words, then you feel safe. The instant you feel safe, if they smile at you, you're in real trouble. Because the human smile has the power to turn off fear and anger in somebody else without their permission. They've proven that. Dr. Andrew Newberg's proven that the human smile, if you genuinely smile at somebody, no matter how angry, they can be in a total rage. And if you give them a, 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 a genuine smile, instantly their brain shuts down and they can't be in a rage no more. Because the human smile says you're safe. And if they ever smile at you while they're talking to you, your brain says, Ooh, safe. You don't even realize what it's done. And it just turned off every defensive mechanism you got in your brain. And, and so in, instead of being sensitive or, or, or say, ooh, maybe this is just not comfortable, then it, it, it builds trust. And so you start talking about more stuff. And you give people information and criticize. And you're watching to see if they're going to criticize it. So you, oh, you give more information, more information. So... Once it goes from, from politics to, to sports to weather, then it, it just it, it starts getting a little more serious. And the next thing you give someone is your opinion. Now, opinions can cause you to have problems. How do you get from this level to this level? Trust. It's trust. The more you talk, the more you trust. And you keep talking. Now you're going to tell them about your opinions. You're going to give them information they can criticize. If they don't laugh at your opinions, they'll make fun of you because of your opinions, they'll ridicule you because of your opinions, then you feel more comfortable. If they smile at you during that time, brain just, all defensive mechanism just totally go away. And, and, and so you just open yourself some more. And, and after opinions, you're going to start... Given more and more information on yourself, and and we're going to start walking down this 
stair step to we've opinions, fears, failures, and then secrets. It takes at least nine months to tell somebody a secret about your life. If you ever get to that stage in your life, see, when you talk to somebody, you're going to trust them. The more you talk, the more you trust. The more you talk, the more you trust. The more you talk, then there becomes a touch. They'll lay their hand on your hand in conversation. They'll put their hand on your shoulder in conversation. There, there comes a, 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 a body contact of some form. And, and the more you talk and the more you trust, then that body contact becomes even greater. It goes from a casual pat on the hand to a touch on to the, a full body embrace. And you start hugging one another. And whenever you get to that point, you're only two steps away on the sexual ladder to the sex act. You've, you've let all the walls down. And you've let somebody in your life. And sex happens. The Dobson Institute says it takes 60 hours of intimate conversation to produce the sex act. I don't care how much God you think you have or Holy Ghost you think you have. You keep talking to someone for 60 hours where it's just you and them alone, uninterrupted. That doesn't mean you're talking about intimate things. That simply means there's, there's no interruptions, no, no interference to this conversation. And, and you keep going, and 60 hours down the road, there will be an affair. You'll have enough hold to go stop it because it's, you, you, you've gotten rid of every one of your defensive mechanisms. The, the brain says safe, 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 safe. There's no problem with this. And so now the touch goes from an embrace to a kiss or a lingering embrace to a kiss, and then, then we have a relationship. Eighty percent of the time, those people feel so guilty and ashamed of what they did, they go home and confess. 80% of the time, they, they're going to tell their mate. They violated their marriage, and they're going to go home and they're tell their mate, you know what, I messed up. I'm sorry. They're confess. Then at that point, it becomes a battle of, of discovering whether or not they're going to make it through this and whether or not this is going to be okay or we'll survive. 80% of the time, they fix their marriage, and they stay married, which is 80 times 80 is only 64% of the the, the total cases, but 80% of the time they confess, then 80% of the time they stay married. So that's 64% of the original group. Second category is like to the first, but it takes longer to develop. Instead of taking nine months to 12 months, it takes 18 months, two years. And the longer you take taking that wall down and letting somebody else in your life, the more attached you become to them. And these are the people that leave their mates and run off and get involved with the other person. They just decide, you know what, I love them more than I did the other person. It took such a long time developing. They're emotionally attached, and now the two of them are going to leave, and they're going to go live together for a while. They'll divorce, and eventually those two will wind up married. But it took a long time for that to happen. It didn't happen overnight. Third category of an affair is called sexual addiction. That's the person who can meet somebody and in just a moment's, days, or no more than a week's time get involved in a relationship with somebody else. There's nothing to do with, with, with a, a connecting or being a long-lasting relationship. It's just a, purely an animal act where they get involved 
and then they walk away and they find somebody else and, get, and their life's going to be littered with t- hundreds of people. The first category you can help. Second category I haven't had any success with. And the third category is a lost cause. I don't even try to help them because they're all about themselves and it doesn't matter about anybody else. And when there's been multiple affairs, then you get the risk of disease. There's all kinds of issues that start showing up. Yeah. Um, it, it's a very dangerous environment when there have been multiple affairs. Okay, let's go back to my chart. 1940, 1950, 1946 was the spike of adultery in the 20th century. I mean, it's just an incredible amount of cases took place. Fell off. Then they started growing. 1960, we get the same spike. Now, there's no war. Well, Vietnam, but it was later. But that wasn't like World War II. No one was begging somebody to come to work in the workforce. What happens 20 years later? The second spike are the children that grow up to be adults. Okay. Who gets children in divorce? Who does? Who's, who's the one who gets the children? Mother most of the time. Unless they can prove she's unfit. Mother gets the kids. Why? Because she's the one with the nurturing abilities. So the courts know that. So they place the children in mother's custody. Okay, let's look at these kids that grow up in this environment. What's going to happen to the males in that environment? If this is right, what's going to happen to the males? They're going to be okay. Mom's there. What's going to happen to females? No role model. Nobody. So what's going to happen? What, what should have happened in the American culture in the 60s? You should have seen the rebellion of who? Females. Well, someone asked me that question. Women's lib. When did it show up? 1960, 1966, it's, it's, it's heyday. It wasn't men burning their underwear. It was the females. It was the sexual revolution where they come up with these, this idea that if you're going to buy a pair of shoes, you're going to try it on, make sure it fits. So, And this, this is arguments. I heard females saying all the time. You're going to try it on, make sure it fits. So marriage, is, it's got to be a relationship where things fit. So you've got to live with somebody so you'll know them. Uh, you know, if they're not compatible, then you can break it off. And So all of a sudden we have this sexual revolution that produces Ill- illegitimate children. 1950, 5% of children born in urban America were illegitimate. 1980, 80% of children born in urban America were illegitimate. And, and that number is about 90 to 95% right now. Why? Because we see no need for parents involved in kids' life because a famous lady said it takes a village to raise a child. That's real stupid. 
It takes a mom and dad to raise kids, not a village. Kids need both parents involved in their life. All right. These ladies had children. Now, this is a woman who has kids that had no father in her life. What's going to happen to the children born to her? Well, who's going to be affected in this generation? The males. What happened in America from 1980 to 1986? It's when the homosexual society just erupted. And they come out of the closet. And they plotted ways of how to market their behavior so we'd accept it. And they went to Madison Fifth Avenue and hired publicists and people who would put together profiles. And and they, they sold their lifestyle to America by a little term we've all embraced and we think is really important and that's civil rights they got rights so what why can't they so now we have first generation destroyed the female second generation destroyed the male now homes don't matter anymore it's just out of control why well it started because of what we did in the families and if we expect to heal it then we've got to start healing families. And we need to start teaching things to people to help them understand why behavior happens the way it happens and what we can do to change it. Every child needs parents in their life. Every boy needs a mom between the age of, of 9 and 15 that, that's, that's convincing him of how important he is and treats him with dignity and respect so that he won't take advantage of every female that's around him or exploit them or wreck their lives. Anybody ever pay attention to interviews of people that work in the adult industry? 95% of females involved in the adult industry were victims of sexual abuse as children. 95% of homosexual men were victims of male-to-male sexual abuse as a child. It's an incredibly high number. They, they, no one will address it. They, they won't address the fact that spirits get stuck. He joins himself. To, that sex act connects two human spirits. So you wind up with that other person attached to you. We're not going to address this because... That's what the Bible says. And so we're not going to have anything to do with the Bible in anybody's life, and we're going to ignore where these issues are. But the real issue in America is our homes are falling apart. If we don't put them back together, there's no hope of recovery. If we put them back together, there is hope. All you got to do is look at Israel. When Jesus showed up, it was terrible. He helped change their whole perspective. They won't admit it, but he helped change their whole perspective about families and marriages and relationships. And put it all back together. Well, all it takes is one or two families in America saying, you know what, let's show the world how to have a good family. Let's start treating each other with dignity and respect. 
let's 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 make sure that we don't allow things to happen that's going to wreck everybody else's life. We're going to choose to love people. That's the next thing on that list. What happens if all these things on this list that I'm going to show you today, actually I think there's 12 on this list. All of these things on this list, if you don't receive them, you are damaged. Values, if not experienced, leave you a damaged individual. If you don't receive love in your life, you're going you're to shut your emotions off. You're going to become cold, harsh, hard, <coughs> indifferent. You won't care how to connect to people because you shut love off in your life. <coughs> love, you got to have safety to produce love. you got to have love to produce trust. Without trust, you can't love somebody. Without love, you can't trust somebody. So they're, they're all connected. What happens if someone chooses not to trust you? <coughs> what does it do to you? Are you are you okay? What happens if your mom or dad choose not trust you? What happens if your husband or wife chooses not to trust you? How does that make you feel? What does it do you as a person? Because it's major damage in your life. Because we need trust. Trust, by definition, is a risk. The risk is I'm going to be violated. I'm going to be hurt. Someone's going to do something to me to injure me. Trust has to have a risk involved to be trust. Who earns the right to have a risk? No one can earn that. You choose to take a risk to trust somebody because they are valuable to you. They're the diamond. They're not broke. They're diamond. So you trust them because they're valuable. You love them because they're valuable, not because they earn it, but because they're valuable. You create safety for them because they're valuable. Okay. What about truth and honesty? What happens in your marriage or relationship if the person's not truthful to you? Does it affect your ability to trust them? Does it affect your ability to relate to them? Big time. What happens if there's no forgiveness? These are all gifts. No one earns any of this stuff. These are things you choose to give people because of how valuable they are, not how they perform. You don't forgive people. You know, we got this dumb idea that I'll forgive but won't forget. That's real stupid. Where's the selective amnesia come from? Where's that rag you can rub that memory off? You're going to forgive them and manage that memory the rest of your life. There's impossible. It's impossible to, for, to, to forget. That's not a possibility. You choose to deal with it. Because forgiveness is a gift. No one earns it. You choose to forgive them because they're valuable. You validate them. You make them feel important. You make your children feel like they're valuable. You don't call them stupid or dumb or that's, you're an idiot. You can't do anything right. But there's research done by a gentleman. His name is um, Dr. Kevin Lehman. He's a Christian. His dad was a Methodist preacher. But he has studied development, child development, some of these things that happen in our lives. And he says in his research, and his research proves that all of us, are controlled by the most powerful memory we have of childhood. That's our defining, that's what defines our life. When you think about your life, the most powerful memory you can think about of childhood is the thing that defines you. Why? Because you're on the inside looking out. You can't see none of this outside stuff. All you're seeing is, is what's stored inside. So that most powerful memory is the defining point. I, I had incredible parents. I, I had the most wonderful mom and dad you could ever meet. 
Now, their families were terrible. Mom and Dad came out of horrible families. Grandpa Hughes was probably the most worthless human I ever met, never took care of his family. Uh, he, he, didn't, he never supported him. Grandmother taught school. If she hadn't taught school, the kids would have starved to death. She was a school teacher. I don't ever remember Grandpa ever living with Grandma. Grandma lived in Port Arthur, Texas. He lived 120 miles away up on the lake. And he, he, they were just never together. I never remember that in my life. My Grandpa Freeman was an orphan. And his mom and dad died when he was two. He was put in an orphanage in Huntsville, Alabama at the age of two. Lived there to his nine, ran away. Huntsville, Alabama is on the east side. He made it all, this is in the 1800s. He made it all the way, late 1800s. I think he was born in 1887, so somewhere between 1895, 96. He ran away. And he made it all the way across Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Louisiana, halfway across Texas into southern Oklahoma. Nobody has a clue how he got there. This nine-year-old. That's the meanest old man you ever met in your life. You can get close to him. You got close to him, and he didn't like what you was doing. He'd whack you with that cane. So you stayed out of cane's reach so he couldn't get you. He didn't even have to have a reason to hit you. He had no clue how to love people. That's what mom came out of. But they never let what they came out of define who they were. I have none of those memories. My memory of mom and dad were these incredible parents that loved us unconditionally. They did get in church, and church changed their life. Now, Dad's family didn't get in church, but Mom's family, 37 of them, got the Holy Ghost after Mom and Dad got the Holy Ghost. And, uh, they had quite a revival just in my mom's family during a very short period of time. Produced three preachers out of that that, that pastored churches in Texas uh, over time. And an incredible uh, move of God, but they had terrible families. My greatest memory of childhood is eight years of age. I go to Dad's garage. Dad owned his own garage. He had a machine that straightened frames on a car. He'd been in a car wreck. And he, he was considered the best in town. All the car dealerships, if they got a car that had been damaged and wrecked, and they're trying to fix it, they'd send it to Dad's shop, and he could, he could straighten it up so that when it drove down the road, it didn't run crooked. You know, <laughs> the wheels lined up behind each other. And there was a unique way to do that, and he knew how to do it. Dad was just gentle giant. had huge hands. He, his hand, his finger was probably twice the size of mine. He had a 16-pound sledgehammer that he cut the handle off. It was about this long. And he could take that 16-pound sledgehammer one-handed and, and put that car in a bind and, and put pressure on certain ways and, and put a jack and force it into place. And then he said, you got to use the scientific approach. He'd have to hit it with us. I mean, he'd just haul over and hit that frame at a certain spot because if he didn't, when he turned it loose, it'd go back the way it was. But if he hit it real hard, it'd relieve the stress. And it'd stay in position so he could hit that car. But I never even remember those hands ever hurting me. So I, I go in his shop. He's pulled the motor out of a car and sitting on concrete blocks. And I started walking around. There was my brother, my little brother, my little sister. And, and we're walking. And Dad looks at me, and I'm looking at that motor. He said, James, you want to take this motor apart? I said, yeah, Dad, I'd love to take that motor apart. My mom said, Egbert, he can't take that motor apart. Dad said, well, why can't he? Well, he's a kid. He don't know how. Dad said, well, Lois, he can learn. He'll get dirty. Well, we'll wash him when we get through. So I got to spend the day with Dad. Dad won. I took that motor apart by myself. Now, there were some bolts I couldn't break, so Dad would go get a pipe and 
put it on the anvil, take that hammer, and he'd hit it in that pot and flatten it out and slid it over that wrench. He said, okay, son, get out here on the end. And you get out on the end and push it, pow, it'd break loose. He taught me about a fulcrum, and it's, he taught me all kinds of lessons that day. But I took it apart. I was greased from head to toe. I had it all over me. But that's, see, Dad taught me there was nothing I couldn't do in my life if I just chose to. I just, you need to look for details. There were boats hidden in holes. You didn't know they were there. And so you'd try to get something. He said, no, there's still another boat. Look for it. He wouldn't tell me where it's at. He'd just look. There are holes there. Look in holes. And so you'd start looking in the holes. Well, there's a boat in the head there. There's one in the head there. There's one there. There's one there. And you find all these boats. And you take them loose. And life can teach us things that are not true. That first 12 years, incredible. Your marriage skills. Would you learn how to relate to a wife? By watching what dad did to his, your mother. You didn't go next door to watch the neighbors relate, figure out this is the way husband and wife relate. You, you just learn to relate by watching dad. Now, if dad didn't do it right, you got a problem. You got to choose not to do it like dad did. My dad did. My dad made sure we had food on the table. We got to choose not to do it the way our parent did. We can't look at it and say, well, that's normal. I, I've had hundreds of men. One of them one day was so mad, his face was red, he had veins on his neck, boils out, and his wife kept saying, he's got a problem with anger. And he'd scream, I don't have no problem with anger. Fool me. <laughs> She'd say, you can't even look in my eyes when you talk to me. I can look at you. And he, he never did make eye contact. Well, there ain't nothing wrong with me. My dad did it like this. Look at me. I'm okay. Really? How do you define Normal. Normal is defined by the environment you grew up in. So your normal could be abnormal. So you, you don't define life by, okay, this is the way you do it. What you need to do is look at the Bible and say, how does the Bible teach me how to do it? How do I treat people? What, how do I relate to people? If I relate to them correctly, then I change. I've got to validate them. You've got to validate your children. You've got to validate your mate. You have to validate people in, in the world. Number seven, acceptance. What's the opposite of acceptance? Do you understand it's easier to heal from cancer than it is rejection? Because rejection says you're worthless. It, it destroys you. It damages you as a person. It, it, You've got to have acceptance. That is a gift you give somebody. You accept your children not because they perform or they do good or they care... You accept your children because of who they are. They're valuable. They're a treasure. They're not broke. You've got to have admission. You've got to let people in your life. That's a gift. You don't have to let nobody in. You can tune everybody out. You can get mad at people, keep them out of your life, or you can choose to let them in. But you've got to let them in. These are gifts. Availability. You've got to be there. You don't have to let them in. You, you tell, oh, you have access to my life, then get in the car and drive off. You've got to be there. That's a gift. You've got to approve there. There's got to be approval. There's got to be affirmation. There's got to be affection. These are things that if they're not in our lives, we're broke. That's values. Let's talk about the next one. Well, those are there. We, we've talked about them. Rules. What are rules? Rules define how you play a game. Rules are to keep the chaos out of your home. Every house has to have a set of house rules. There's got to be rules of where clothes go when, when you take them off. 
There's got to be rules of where dishes go when you get through eating. At my house, when supper is over, everybody don't get up and leave the table. When everybody leaves the table, they walk away with a fork and a spoon and a plate and a glass. And they all march first to the trash can and rake off all the food they didn't eat. Then they go to the sink and wash off the food that's left. And they empty their glasses and they leave their, 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 their plate and their glass and their silverware in the sink. Everybody does that, from the littlest one to the biggest one. That keeps the chaos out. There ought to be curfews in your house. You know, God didn't design you to stay up all night. Do you realize if you don't get at least six hours of sleep a night, you damage your brain? If you go 24 hours without sleep, you will start suffering symptoms of the clinical depression. Your brain will quit producing serotonin. You go 48 hours without sleep, and your brain stops producing dopamine, and now you have problems with reality, and you'll start hearing things and seeing things that don't exist. You will hallucinate. God didn't design us to stay up all night. One of the biggest problems in America is sleep deprivation, and it is the root cause of a lot of disease that we're encountering because we think we don't need any sleep. See, God created the, that when the sun goes down at night and it gets dark, that your brain, when it can't perceive light, starts producing a hormone called melatonin, and you start getting sleepy. And when the sun comes up in the morning and your eyes are closed, your eyelids are thin enough to let light through. So even with your eyelids closed, when that sun comes up and light starts coming in, it quits producing melatonin and you wake up. So God designed us to sleep from dusk till dawn. When we invented the light bulb, we lost six hours of sleep a night. Because now we don't have to go to bed at dark. Now we have things that what Can I ask you a question? What productive act can happen after midnight. Well, what are you going to do that's going to make your life better? Nothing. But we have problems because we think there's no big problem here, but sleep deprivation is wrecking us. There's, there needs to be some curfews in your house. There, there need, at my house, midnight's the curfew. My grown kids, my son had to move away to... Dallas to go to work. His wife got sick and had to move back home, so they had no place to stay. So they lived with me for about three months while she had surgery until she recovered. They had a curfew at my house. They are married with kids, but that's my house. There's a curfew. And we're in bed at 12 o'clock. Everybody's in bed at 12 o'clock. Okay? That's just the rule. Everybody's in bed. I don't care how old you are. Everybody's in bed. That's the rule. you got to have house rules. It keeps the chaos out. You got rules with what you do with clothes. You don't just throw them all over the floor. You don't start at the back door and disrobing and have a litter of clothes all the way through the house and expect mom to be the maid. Not at my house. It don't happen. See, my, my wife's not a janitor to nobody. She's a diamond. She's the queen of my house and queens. Oh. She's not the hired servant of my house. We help her. 
Boy, I'm, I'm on the wrong subject here, aren't I? I'm, I'm, I'm irritated. So we've, we've hurt one another because we just don't think some of these things are important. There's got to be rules. You don't want your house to be chaotic. You want it to be safe. So there are rules. My kids have rules. My grandkids have rules. They obey them at my house. I don't care what they do at their house. At my house, they follow my rules because I'm the boss. <laughs> but I didn't just set the rules. My children helped me set the rules as well. When they got old enough for us to talk about, okay, here are the things. Uh, what curfew do you want? When my kids were young, our curfew was 10 o'clock. And they didn't get to date. That, that dating thing is about the dumbest thing we let our kids do. Go, allow a 14-year-old hormone-raged kid to go out and have a single date. You just, act, I mean, how dumb can we get? There are rules. They went on dates. You know, when I was a kid, you had a chaperone. You can go by yourself. You say you love somebody, you're going to treat that person with dignity and respect. And you weren't allowed. When I was in Bible college, there was, I'm 21 years old. There's no single dating. We had to date in pairs. Why? Because all that dating stuff, it's all fake anyway. It's just an act. There's no truth to it. I mean, the real you can't show up. The real you shows up. They're going to run home and hide. They're not going to want to spend the rest of their life with you. So we got to learn to court and we got to learn to fake things and be things we're not. And Kevin Liebman says that she marries the knight in shining armor but goes home with a little boy with a bullfrog in his pocket. There's no truth to that. See, you can get two adults married, and when it happens at church, it happens somewhere up here, right here. And, and, and you, you go through all these things. You tell them all these. You give them these vows and instruct them about marriage. And they grin like possums up here and, and, and just say, you know, yes, we're going to do all these things. But when they walk off this place, the two adults don't leave. They stay up here. Two kids walk down that aisle. And they spend the rest of their life acting like two-year-olds and three-year-olds and scream and holler and throw things and break things. We, we helped a couple move. And there were pictures hung way up here and some down here and some over here. And just an erratic place. And how, what in the world do you want a picture over there for in the corner? We started taking, yeah, started taking the pictures off walls. And there's, there's a rounded shape in that wall. That's a boots. And there's one that got the imprint of a, there were probably a hundred holes in that house. You know, you understand how evil that is? You really understand how evil that is. He left every one of those holes to remind everybody in that house, this is what I can do to you. Why wouldn't you repair it? If you do something that stupid and act that juvenile, why wouldn't you fix it? Because he wants everybody else to know, I'm not ashamed of what I did. And when we moved him, he wasn't ashamed of the holes. He grinned and laughed and said, oh, I did that. What kind, you think that's a diamond at that house? No. You've got to have rules. And the rules 
define how you live life. Now, there are two kinds of rules. There are rules of the game, and there are rules of strategy based upon the opponent. If you play basketball, there's rules on how you play basketball. But the way you play each team is differently, isn't it? Why? Because you play to their weaknesses and defend their strengths. You can't interpret rules the same for every person. What works for one don't work for the other. Now, if you have children, you'll discover that they're not alike. God don't make clones. And they're going to have, no matter how many you have, if you have 12 of them, they're going to be 12 individual people that have 12 individual personalities that don't do anything like any of the rest of them. Now, I only have two. My daughter and my son are as different as daylight and dark. My daughter is like her mother, never meets a stranger, loves people. I traveled with them when they were young. She has sang in at least 100 different church choirs. I go to somewhere to preach, and they're with me. They'd call choir practice, and she'd just go to church. She'd join their choir. She'd sing with them because she just loves people. My son's like me. He's an introvert. Now, punishing my daughter, she could turn on the tears and the noise, and you weren't even in the room. She can do all the sound effects before you ever got there. So that, that was, that's not punishment. But she couldn't stand to be alone. So making her go to her room, close the door, oh, that wrecked her life. You get her attention real quick. All right, Jill, you're going to go to your room if you don't behave. Oh, boom, please, please, please. We wore out three microwaves without cooking food in them by setting timers for my daughter in her room. <laughs> Okay, all breaking, you know, back then, you all twisted his little dial. Go to your room, Jill. Oh, Mom, please. How long? 30 minutes. Oh, Mom, please. You know, I can't stand to be alone. Jill, go to your room. Okay. Door closed. Two minutes later, door open. How much more time's on the clock? Jill, I'm going to add five minutes every time you open that. Oh, Mom, please, please don't. Anthony, go to your room. Okay. <laughs> Walk off the room, close the door, stay there for hours. Well, that's not punishment. Paddling didn't work. He'd just stand there and shake. Wouldn't cry. Wouldn't tremble. I, that, there's nothing. But he loved money. So he got fined. <laughs> he not only got fined, he had to go to the store and watch his sister spend it. Why not? You've got to figure out what works and what don't work and quit using the stuff that just drives you nuts because it's not getting any effect. They're different. You've got rules, and these are the rules how we play. But how you apply them individually, how many kids you got, they're all going to change from person to person. And all the adults in the house, they change with them too because we're unique. So the rules of the game don't change. Rules of strategy will change. What about boundaries? Boundaries define ownership. They set limits. Boundaries define what you're responsible for. You've got to have boundaries in your life. I have husbands and wives come in. One of them's committed adultery, and they're wanting their marriage to work. And they come in broken, sad. They weep. They cry. And, and invariably, they'll get to the point in the conversation that they'll say, you know, honey, just tell me whatever you want 
if you'll just let me know, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Just, just please, just give me, tell me what you want me to do. I'll stop and say, that don't work. I said, of course it will. All you got to do is tell me what you want. He said, no, it don't work. Come on, it works. Just tell me what you want me to do. It don't work. Why won't it work? Because she has no clue how you think. And when she gives you a list, she's going to live off what's important to you that's calling you the problem. You're the only one who knows what your problems are. So if there's a list of things that need to be done, you make the list. Then give it to her to ask you the questions about what you're doing wrong. You can't get somebody else to define your life. You know where your problems are. So you want to change? You've got to identify your boundaries. Okay, these, these are my issues. I have a fence up for a reason. It's to keep things in and keep things out. I need fences. See, I have a boundary in my life. I don't have friends with females. I don't have female friends. I got married. There's absolutely no reason for married people to have friends with opposite sex. None. Because men and women can't be friends. God created them to be married. At some point, friendship will turn to courtship. I don't care who you are or how much Holy Ghost you think you have, it will eventually turn to courtship. God didn't design us to be friends. My wife's friend, she's got a friend that, that we became friends 40-plus years ago. They moved across the street from us when we were first married. We, we, we cooked supper together. I mean, right across the street. Our house on one side of the street, their house on the other side. My, they'd share it. One evening, she'd, Denise would cook supper, and one evening, my wife would cook supper. And we just swapped eating. We're incredible friends. We're still close friends today. Denise is like her sister. When Denise calls my house, she says, James, is Lee in there? I said, no, she's at the store. She's got her cell phone, though. Okay, bye. I don't ask her how Steve's doing or how the kids are doing, how the grandkids are doing. There's, there's a limit here. See, people who thought they were being friends with one another crossed some lines. Because they became more than friends because they let things happen in their lives because they had no boundaries. There's just some limits. I know, where, I know what James is. I know what James is capable of. So there are limits of things I don't do, places I don't go, because I know my problems. And you know yours. So you've got to create your own boundaries in life. You've got to stake out the territory that belongs to you and take ownership of your boundaries. Nobody's responsible for my emotions or my feelings or my thoughts or my desires other than me. There ain't no devil responsible for them. They're me. If I quit looking at bad stuff, reading bad stuff. By the way, folks, there's two kinds of pornography. We only scream about one version. We only scream about the moving pictures. And the photographs. That's the only one we're, we're really having a problem with. But see, that, that version doesn't usually bother females. Because there's never been a car wreck produced by a woman driving down the street seeing a man in the front yard in a bathing suit. That has never happened. It will never happen. She's not going to wreck cars. She's not going to run into discs. Oh, wow, look at him. He looks good. That's a lie. Women do not respond to what they see. They respond to what they hear, they feel, or they touch. 
men, billions of car wrecks produced by men driving the street. Well, it's been an incredible honor to be here tonight. Amen. Well, let's stand and uh, let's pray. Thank God tonight.